The scripture reading is from Psalm 33. It can be found on page 463 in the Black Bibles. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Luke and Cammie, and good morning. It's a blessing to be with you all. I love the song that Joe sang for us and the music team led for us, Jesus, I Am Resting, Resting. In the last hymn, or the last verse of of that hymn, it says this. It says, ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee, resting beneath thy smile, Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. What I love about that is it's a reminder that the more and more we pay attention to Jesus, the light of the world, the light shines into the darkness of our hearts. And no matter what has happened, no matter what is going on in our lives, we begin to feel that peace and that resting. And I feel like it's incredibly fitting as we come to a psalm like this this morning, a psalm of praise Within the the, the larger context of what has gone on in our world this last week and even in our state this last 24 hours, right, as as another tragic shooting has taken place in El Paso and then even another one in Ohio last night, how can we look at a psalm of praise in the midst of that context? And the answer is that this psalm is a good one for us to look at this morning because it rightly takes our attention off of ourselves 
and off of our circumstances and it places it back on Jesus like like Martha resting at his feet, we are placing our trust in him and the dark shadows of our own hearts begin to flee. It reminds us, our psalm this morning, that he is the creator of all things, that he is the one who sustains all things, and that he is the one who is steadfast for his people, steadfast in his love for us, even when we are hurting. We're reminded of this because the psalm actually follows this beautiful kind of upside-down narrative arc. Right? It begins on a high point. The psalm begins by calling us to worship him, calling us to give praises to the Lord. And then it descends to point out the folly of our worldly attempts at strength. And then finally it ends back on that high point again with the joyful statement that the love of the Lord is steadfast. And so we're actually going to follow that narrative arc through our points together this morning. But before we do so, would you all pray with me now? Our Father and our God, we do come before you this morning in praise. I would imagine that many of us here this morning are struggling in some ways, but I pray that as we consider your word more fully, that we would learn to turn to you the true source of all joy and life, no matter our circumstances. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to follow you. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen. Well, the beginning of the psalm, as I mentioned before, it begins on this high point, the praise of the Lord. The psalm is actually almost an archetype of praise for many of the other psalms that you read throughout the Psalter. So as you read it, as you listen to it, you may find your mind almost wandering. If you've spent much time in church or have ever listened to Christian music, the language of the psalm begins to feel really familiar. So familiar, in fact, that maybe the words have sort of lost particular meaning for you. Right, we hear in verses 1 through 3 a very familiar call to worship. It sounds very familiar to other calls to worship that we've used uh, even here and, and, and even did this morning as well. And so it's because of that that we can almost skip over it in our minds. Get, get me to the real stuff. Get me to the good stuff. Or perhaps this type of language can almost have the opposite effect. Right? It's unfamiliar to us. We don't make joyful noises with harps. If we do anything with harps, we might use them to play soothing music at a spa or to play sleepy music for our children to try and quiet them down so that they'll go to sleep at nighttime. I don't know what it means to make a joyful noise with a harp. We also don't know how to shout for joy to the Lord because we are in a Presbyterian church after all. And so these ideas of shouting and making music to God can almost seem to offend our sensibilities. And even though it's God's word telling us to do these things, we can almost think, well, that can't be right. We're to remain reverent. We must keep our dignity before the Lord. So whether any of these reasons resonate with you or whether you're just not in the right state of mind right now, we can come to these sorts of things with a vast disconnect the opening of the psalm. In some ways, we, we might even feel as if 
we've grown out of the stage of being loud and happy and expressive in our worship to God. It's, it's a good thing that I'm not one of those happy, clappy Christians anymore. It can feel almost as if that's, that's a juvenile quality. But God is telling us through his word that it is not something that we are supposed to grow out of. It's the exact opposite. It's supposed to be something that we grow into with maturity. So let me invite you to slow down and take another look at the opening of the psalm. It's a reminder and a calling that we are to be joyful to the Lord because he has done great things for his people. Our life should be a joy in the Lord and we should respond to him in that joy. It's okay for us to sing loudly, to play loud music in his name, to sing him a new song and to show true emotions of joy to our Lord. In verses 4, 5, and 6, the psalmist reminds us of the reason for our joy. God's steadfast love is over all the earth. And his steadfastness is over all the earth because he has created the earth and all that is in it. God's act of love has produced the heavens and the earth. And it is that act of love that that even David is reflecting on in Psalm 19 when he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God's very creation beams forth his love. It reflects it back to him. We could even say that it loudly sings with joy back to our God. Genesis 1 says, That when God created this world, he declared that it was good. But the crowning achievement of his creation is the creation of mankind. We are somehow very good, he says. For we were made in his image. We were made to reflect the goodness of God back to the world and to him himself. Like creation, we are to loudly sing with joy back to our God. But not only that. We were made for stewarding the world on behalf of God, to have dominion over it. But we are to do so as we image him. And so in essence, as those who are over all creation, we are meant to representatively sing, enjoy the songs of all creation. The songs that creation itself longs to sing verbally. We are the mouthpiece of the mountains singing praises to our God. We are the stringed instruments of the flowers as they burst into bloom. We are the chorus for the eagles in the sky, the dolphins in the sea, and the deer on the land. We not only praise God because of what he has done for us, but also because what he is doing for us. We praise him for who he is. And we do so on behalf of all of creation. We truly make a joyful and an exuberant noise for the Lord. Does that feel strange to you? Does it feel juvenile or wrong to get emotional about the things that God is doing in the world? Or perhaps maybe demonstrating exuberance is hard for you no matter what. Perhaps you struggle to feel the happiness that is expressed in these verses. Or perhaps you've never or or rarely experienced the joy that comes in knowing our God and his character. And if that is true of you, you are not alone This type of praise is actually, it's a spiritual discipline. 
It doesn't begin naturally. It grows with and through our relationship with God. And like all relationships, it takes effort and it takes practice. Only when we spend time with the Lord do we begin to feel a growing sense of emotional joy and happiness that comes in him. So what steps can we actually take to grow in our love of the Lord and in our joy of him. We need to participate in the means of grace. We come to gathered worship like we're doing together now. We read and hear his word. We pray to him and we interact with other Christians in fellowship and in care. All of these are are means by which we grow in the Lord and grow in our joy and praise of him. But I want to focus today primarily on prayer. Is your prayer life largely just a list of requests before God? Do you sort of treat God almost like a spiritual Santa Claus, asking for for the next thing and the next thing? And, And don't get me wrong, he certainly desires to hear the requests of his children. But does it stop there? Because like any good relationship, we have to give him thanks for the things that he has done. And if so, are those things that you give him thanks for, are they rooted specifically? Or are they just general or vague? I've recently begun listening to a lot of podcasts when I drive uh, in the city. And one of the ones that I listen to several times now It's a relatively new podcast out of the University of Berkeley called The Science of Happiness. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it or uh, listened to it. It offers a secular perspective on different practices of habits, practices or habits uh, that that psychological research suggests can improve happiness and well-being. I was initially drawn to the podcast because I was interested to hear how how it would answer the questions of of how we grow in our happiness from a strictly secular perspective. The very first episode that I listened to talked about the practice called Three Good Things. It's a reflection exercise that has been researched and put into into practice for a couple of decades at this point and, and is as simple as it sounds. Each day, you are to reflect on the three good things that happened to you the previous day. The podcast host said that the task of doing this shouldn't take any longer than 15 minutes and and more likely than anything you need to write them down almost like you are journaling them. And I thought, well, this is amazing. How on earth does this actually produce happiness in people? From a completely secular perspective, they are recommending this happiness practice that's been studied to improve people's moods and to help them to feel more happiness. But what are they missing, I thought. And it dawned on me, it's me. I was the one missing something. Because of course our God has designed us for gratitude. God designed us to work best when we are giving thanks for the many blessings in our lives. And even though the podcast suggests that you just do so generically, uh, that there's no particular good giver out there, To give thanks necessarily assumes that there is a good giver giving you these good things in your life. 
They are scientifically noticing that we are happier when we do the things that we were designed by God to do. We grow in our happiness the more we reflect on this good giver. And we grow in our happiness the more we reflect on the details of our life. That they are given to us by our good giver. We grow in joy as we think very specifically about the good things that God has given us. And we offer these things back to him in prayers of thanksgiving and praise. So I want to give you all some practical application. Whether it be to, to read the psalm like we just did this morning and pray specific prayers of thanks back to God. Or whether it be to take up this practice of writing down three good things and thanking God specifically for them. Spend time finding a way to practice gratitude to God. Spend each day in the next week or the, the coming weeks or the next month each day practicing gratitude. In order to train ourselves to sing praises in the way the psalmist sings praises here, we must sing praises in this way. When you give thanks to God, you will grow in your relationship with him. And you might be surprised at, at the exuberance that you begin to feel. Right? It, it might actually get harder and harder to keep silent during a sermon or to sit motionless in the pews as, as we sing praises back to our God. Spend time in gratitude and in prayer and it will change the way that you begin to praise our steadfast, loving God. And that brings us to our second point, the folly of our strength, as the narrative arc descends here. In verse 10, as, as, as there is a decline in the arc, the psalmist says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. The psalmist is reminding us that to the Lord, the plans of men are foolishness. In verse 11, he then contrasts the plans of men to the plans of the Lord, Right, the counsel of the nations is being contrasted to the counsel of the Lord which stands forever. From God's position as he sits enthroned in the heavens and as he sees the children of man, he sees the ways in which we pay attention to all the dangers around us. We begin to trust in the wrong things for deliverance. We trust the powerful elements of the world to keep us from harm. We trust armies and weapons and our own strength to keep us from the physical threats of danger. But what this psalm is doing is asking us to take a step back and to see our actions as God sees them and to imagine the many different types of ways that we, that we look to for security the psalm says that the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. We certainly put our hopes for salvation in military power, in our ability to protect ourselves, or even simple things like alarm systems and gated communities and locked doors, but do our attempts to keep ourselves safe, do they extend beyond our physical power and security? Right? Don't we also use our finances to keep the fear of losing autonomy at bay? 
Don't we also keep our savings account high to try and keep the fear of poverty and pain away? Do we treat modern medicine as a war horse to keep us from ever worrying about the possibility of illness or death? The psalm is is not teaching that any of these safety measures in and of themselves are wrong. I, I have a savings account. I go to the doctor. As I imagine most of you do as well, the psalm is not advocating to get rid of the military. It's not advocating to take a vow of poverty or to renounce all medicine. But it is telling us very pointedly that to hope in anything other than the Lord is foolish. Our strongest strength is still weak. No matter how strong we build up these areas of our lives, they do not bring salvation. We must not fall into the deceitful trap of placing our hope in these things. In what areas of life have you, fall, have you allowed fear to creep in? Are you fearful for your physical safety in a violent world? Are you fearful of economic turmoil in the midst of trade wars and political discord? Are you fearful of aging, death, being lonely or alone? Spend a moment thinking about the fears that you have in your life. It may be the ones that I listed. It may be something else. Perhaps your fear is even a fear of what is happening or isn't happening in the church itself. Do you feel afraid that maybe the church is slipping away? That the younger generation, that more and more millennials and others are embracing the secular culture and and becoming what so many people are calling the nuns, right? Those who identify with no religion at all. Perhaps maybe the younger people here or or even others feel afraid that that the church is going to do what the church has done in the past in our country and, and seek political power by overly identifying with with a single political group or maybe others of you are afraid of a slippery slope of syncretism in the church do you believe that the church is becoming too focused on on fitting in and not just proclaiming the gospel so to speak in our fear for the sanctity and the future of the church we can assume a skeptical or overly protective stance Our good and right desire to protect the holiness of the bride of Christ can devolve into the feeling that we need to protect God, that we need to protect him himself from the secular culture or maybe even from the seeming wolves within the church who are trying to do it harm. But as Stanley Hauerwas, a well-known Christian theologian says, never think that you need to protect God. Because any time you think you need to protect God, you can be sure that you are worshiping an idol. It's very pointed words. And true words. We have real fears. Because we live in a truly broken world. A world where a man can walk into a Walmart and shoot indiscriminately at innocent people. Your fears are not unfounded. They're probably though misplaced. Our fears feel overwhelming because we feel like we need to do something about them. We believe that we can deal with it all ourselves. Or we can come up with preemptive strategies to keep those fears at bay. 
We can keep the right kind of, of security system to keep us safe. We can save the right amount of money to keep us economically secure in our old age. Or we can get our kids to read or listen to the right things to keep them spiritually protected as they grow older. But the truth is that to trust in any of these things is foolish. It is only in the steadfast love of the Lord that we have salvation and that we have safety. So what do we do with our fears? We learn to bring them before our God as we, as we also talked about learning to bring our praises before him as well. We practice it. We put ourselves in a position to depend upon God in faith with our fears. We acknowledge our fears before God. And very practically speaking, I would say do so audibly or write them down. But give these very specific fears to God. And then shine the spotlight of the gospel onto the dark shadowy fears of our hearts. We remind ourselves that when we do that, that it is God who has spoken all things into being. It is God who calms the wind and the waves. It is the Lord Jesus who commands for us not to fear, not because we will never struggle or suffer, but because he has guaranteed a new world that is coming. A new world that is coming through his kingdom. He's promised that our sin has been dealt with on the cross. That death is defeated by his resurrection. And that he is Lord. And there is no other. As he has ascended the throne. We must no longer fear because we have a steadfast hope. A steadfast hope in a steadfast Lord. Our hope is in him because what he says is true. So now we're ascending into the narrative arc and coming to our third point. That is the loyal love of the Lord. Yes, it is foolish to believe that we can protect ourselves from our enemies or our fears. Our battles, though, are, are, are not over. The struggle continues. But as the people of God, our battles are not chiefly against the nations, tribes, or peoples of the earth. And unfortunately, the church has taken that view in the past. No, we are not battling against, against fellow human beings. Instead, our battle is, as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, it is against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battles that we face are chiefly spiritual battles. Spiritual battles of, of internal struggle with sin in our personal lives. Spiritual battles of discontent and relational strife in the body of Christ. Spiritual battles of, of faithfulness as, as the whole church attempts to stand against the temptations of the world. And spiritual battles of faith as we seek to witness by our actions and by our words to others who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you feel these battles regularly? Do those struggles feel real to you? I would imagine for, for some of you, yes. They should feel real because they are real. They are very real spiritual forces that are at war against the kingdom of God. 
and, and perhaps for others of you, you, you don't believe in it or perhaps you don't notice it because maybe you don't feel challenged in your faith. Through, this, through the prosperity of life and the relative ease and comfort that we might have, our faith can sometimes feel, for, feel easy or maybe even it can feel like sort of an add-on to the rest of our life. John Calvin, the 16th century theologian, said this about his time, and it's as true for our time as it was for his. He said that for in prosperity, we do not experience the worth of his assistance and the power of his spirit as when we are, as when we are oppressed by men. What he's saying is that in the hardship of life, we find that we begin to feel our need of God. In the hardship of life, we actually have a sense of clarity about the way that things are. That we need God and that he is strong and we are not. And it is in hardship that we learn how to flex our spiritual muscles, so to speak. How to listen to God's word, to pray back to him, to participate in fellowship and, and to depend upon God. The last few years, I've gotten really into working out. I would imagine that you all can tell right now. <laughs> but uh, but I, I often feel like a poser at the gym. Right? I'm, I'm not the weightlifter. I'm not the level of weightlifter that others are in the gym. There, there are serious, very serious bodybuilders in there who have great form and are measured in their experience in the gym by the very second. They know exactly what they're doing all the time. And I'm still learning. Right? I've been trying, I've been new at this and I'm trying to, to just get stronger because I enjoy it. And as I've been reading more and more about what trainers say for gaining strength, I learned that there's pretty much only one universal truth about weightlifting and getting stronger. Yes, you, you definitely need to be doing it with the right form so that you don't hurt yourself. But the only way to get stronger is to struggle. You either need to lift heavier weights or you need to lift the same weight more times. In essence, in order to get stronger, your muscles have to struggle. And that is true of our faith as well. The only way for us to grow in faith is to struggle in faith. To be in positions where we realize that we cannot do it on our own. That God has to come through. Maybe that's putting yourself in more positions to share a meal with a non-Christian like Andres challenged us to do last week. Maybe it's volunteering to serve alongside one of the many mission partners that we support beyond the serve day that we just talked about. Or maybe it's as simple as engaging in a conversation with a family member, a friend, or a coworker, in the hope of reconciliation when, when you are pretty certain that that conversation right now would not go well and it would be an act of faith to engage in it. When you place yourselves in these circumstances, when you are obedient to doing and being what God calls us to be, a light into the world, and when you place yourself in a position to depend upon God to show up, right, you're straining your spiritual muscles. Right? You're focusing and forcing yourself to your knees in prayer, 
to listen to God's word and to give him thanks for the result no matter what it is. Some of what I'm saying may sound quite frightening to you and and so maybe you've tuned it out. But as I was asking for you to pray in Thanksgiving earlier, I'm going to ask you to do something very practical about this as well. Find one thing that God has put on your heart to do in faithfulness in him. Whatever that one thing is, whether it's a hard conversation or a more formal engagement in any sort of ministry, take steps to do that this week. And as you do so, you will probably feel anxious about it. You might feel like a poser, right, like I do in the gym. But as you prepare to step out in faith, I want you to do two things. First, I want you to pray, to acknowledge your fear before God, to tell him about the things that are making you anxious. And then second, I want you to read the very end of this psalm. I'll read it for us now. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The psalmist ends by reminding us that no matter what happens, we have our hope in a Lord who is steadfast in his love. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is in control and he cares. And through Jesus Christ, he has demonstrated his steadfast love for us. Our hope is rooted in his promises. That our our Lord is changing the world by his steadfast love. Right, person by person, he is changing our hearts. By the power of the Spirit, he takes our hearts of, flesh, of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh because he allows us to look deeply into the deep wounds of our hearts and the deep wounds of our sin that we might repent and run into his ever-loving arms and ever-forgiving arms. And he is changing our hearts so that we might learn to praise him as the, mouthpiece, as the mouthpiece for all creation. Because one day, the earth will sing an uninterrupted chorus of praise and joy together. Let me end with this. I've, I've given you a lot of things I want you to do this week or in the near future. And I want to remind you that if, if your faith is in Jesus Christ this morning, know that you are secure. So if you fail in doing the things that I've suggested this morning, which you very well may, his steadfast love for you is secure. He is your help and he is your shield. We are no longer bound by our fears, even our fears of failure. But we are a people of genuine hope, hope in our steadfast and loving God. Let's pray. Our steadfast Father, we come before you this morning, a people who are needy. Lord, we need you. Father, forgive us for the ways that we trust in ourselves or in other things. Teach us to trust in you more and more because it is only in Jesus Christ that all hope and joy might be found. And it is in his name that we pray by the Spirit. Amen.